Second Samuel chapter nine. I'm going to read uh, the passage uh, in its entirety, the chapter. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul... And to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We pray that in this time you would open our eyes to see not just a good act of David, but a reflection of the gospel. In this passage, reflection of the grace of God to us in Christ. Pray that you would open our eyes to our own heart uh, to see our unworthiness and to, that your grace would be magnified and that Christ would be magnified in this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
uh, as most of you probably know, the story of, of David and his life. Right? We know that David was, he was not born into a royal family. He was not born into the kingly family of Saul, at the, who was king at the time. But we know that he was a, a young shepherd boy, right? Uh, called by God to be the king because Saul had become unfaithful to the Lord. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with all that David suffered under the hands of Saul, right? That he served Saul faithfully, uh, but yet Saul became jealous of David and, and chased him all up and down. Israel hunted him like a partridge in the mountains, that was David's words. Made his life miserable. But yet David patiently and faithfully waited for God to establish him as king, right? One of the beautiful things of David's life is he refused to take matters into his own hands. He refused to kill Saul, even though he had multiple opportunities to do so. But he waited patiently, and God acted on his behalf, and Saul was, was killed, and David was established king. So now in, this, in chapter 9, we find David, uh, his kingdom is firmly established. Right? He, he's king, no question about it. Uh, Saul's family has been decimated, and, and David and his family have been exalted to that place uh, of honor. And now with his kingdom secure, David seeks out a descendant of Saul to show him the kindness of God. Right? We see that phrase in verse 3. And I think that phrase is really the key to understanding the story. Why, why is this in here? Right? Do we just have a nice story about David to show what a great guy he was? Right? Do we, we just have a story here to show us a moral lesson? Be kind to your enemies, be kind to their children, and you know, it'll go, all things are going to go good for you if you do that. No, I think, I think the point of this passage is to become a reflection of the gospel. Right? Now, as, as New Testament Christians, we look back at the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel, and we can see, I mean, clearly in, in our Old Testament reading this evening, right? Genesis 22, with uh, Isaac being offered on the altar. Clearly, there is an illustration of the gospel going on in that passage that we can see clearly looking back, right? And I think Second uh, Samuel chapter 9 is similar. I think we're to look at it through a gospel lens, and so that's what, that's what I like to do this evening, to look at this passage through a gospel lens to see how the grace of God through the gospel is illustrated in David's actions towards Mephibosheth. And not only that, but to see how we are reflected in Mephibosheth. Right, that's kind of a tongue-twisting name, so if I get it mixed up, uh, please give me some grace. But Mephibosheth, because it's interesting that he is the descendant uh, of David's enemy and rival, Saul. Right? And, and most of the time, if we look back at world history, uh, most kings sought out the descendants of their rival to not invite them over to stay at their house, but to kill them. Right? They sought the, the descendants of their rivals to annihilate them, 
so that there would be no, no rivals, no, no treachery, no going back to the old order, right? World history is full of stories of rulers killing their rivals, annihilating their families so they wouldn't have any trouble from them in the future. But David does the exact opposite of that. He brings Mephibosheth not to kill him, but to restore him, to make him one of his household, that he would eat at David's table for the rest of his life. So I want us to look at how we see ourselves reflected in Mephibosheth and then how we see the gospel of Christ and his grace reflected in in David's actions towards Mephibosheth. So first, I see two things in Mephibosheth that show us who we are. First, his unworthiness, and secondly, his impotence or powerlessness to do anything that might benefit David. Mephibosheth was the grandson of Saul, David's enemy and persecutor, and as a descendant of Saul, he was a rival for the throne of Israel. The Bible says that in our natural condition, we are enemies of God, uh, children of the devil. Uh, All of you, I'm sure, know Romans chapter 3, verse 23, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In our sin, we are enemies of God. Now, what is this condition of sin? When I was um, ministering over in Japan, people would commonly say, Japanese people don't understand sin. You can't use the word sin. They don't understand the concept of sin. Take that away, and what do you have? (laughs) What do you have to show people their need for the gospel? And it was in reading the gospel of John that I came to understand no one understands sin unless God opens their eyes. And I specifically saw this in John chapter 8. Turn over to John chapter 8. Uh, John chapter 8, and in this passage, uh, starting in verse um, 34, Jesus is talking, uh, oh, I'm sorry, we'll start up in, in verse 1, or 31, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus is talking to his own people, the Jews, who have the Old Testament, who have read it. And he says, The truth will set you free. And they said, Free from what? And so Jesus continues. He begins to explain what they need to be set free from. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. (laughs) 
So even the Jews did not understand sin. Right? This helped me a lot. Right? It's just because a certain group of people may not understand the concept of sin doesn't mean I throw it out and I can't use it anymore. Jesus had to explain sin and the human condition in sin to the Jews who had the Scriptures. They did not understand they were slaves to sin, but that is our condition in sin. We are slaves to sin. And then, of course, the conversation continues on. Wait, our father is Abraham. No, your father is not Abraham. If Abraham were your father, you would not be seeking to kill me. Well, God is our father. No, God is not your father. If God were your father, you would not be rejecting me, right? And then Jesus offers the slam in verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Right, so we see Jesus explaining what does it mean that to be in a sinful condition, right? We, again, Romans 3.23, all have sinned, okay? Yeah, yeah, we, we all make mistakes, we all mess up. No, Jesus explains what does that mean? It means that we are in a condition of constant rebellion and slavery to the very things that God forbids and hates. It means that we are offspring of the enemy of God, the devil, doing his desires, following his dictates. We are the children of the rival kingdom of God, dead in sins and trespasses. You cannot uh, exaggerate the human condition of sin. We're unworthy of God's goodness. We are unworthy of His kindness. We're unworthy of His mercy. God does not show us mercy and favor because we are worthy. We're all unworthy of God's kindness, deserving only His wrath. God shows mercy because He is merciful and good, not because we are deserving. That is our unworthiness. And then, on top of that, Mephibosheth is not only the descendant of David's greatest enemy, Saul, but he is also lame. It mentions that several times. Uh, and back in 2 Samuel chapter 4, you can learn how that happened, right? When, when Saul died and Jonathan died in battle, the nurse was carrying this child, Mephibosheth, and she, I don't know if he, she dropped him or she fell, but his legs were broken. He was crippled, and his feet never healed. He could not walk, right? Mephibosheth could add nothing to David's house, right? Imagine if, these, if the tables were turned here. Mephibosheth was trying to apply for a position uh, in David's house, Right. Well, what qualities can you, Mephibosheth, can you work the fields? Can you go out with the men, work the vineyards, work the fields? Can you tend the sheep? No, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm lame. Okay, Mephibosheth, can you, can you fight? Can you defend the castle? Could you defend David if someone broke in? 
no, I, I can't do that. I, I'm lame. Right? It brought no physical, material advantage to David to bring Mephibosheth into his house. He was only going to be someone that ate his food, that sat in his house. And we, we have to understand, we bring nothing to God in salvation. We, we have to come to Him, to Christ, with empty hands. We, we have nothing to add, nothing to offer. Nothing in my hands I bring. Right? And, and so much religion is based on doing something for God or a God or the gods, right? So that they will then do something for you, right? All of man-made religion is based on this system. I, I will give an offering. I will give money. I will give this sacrifice and the God will do this for me, right? I will give money to the temple and God will bless my new car so I don't get in an accident, or I will give this to the temple and the God will give me favor in my exams or give me a promotion at work. But you see, this is the opposite of true religion. This is the opposite of the Christian gospel. True religion begins with humility, a low view of ourselves. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. True religion begins with a humble view of ourselves. And often this is the beginning of God begins his saving work in a person's heart by humbling them and showing them their sins. Not showing them how good they are, not showing them how religious they are, but showing them how sinful, wicked, and unworthy we are. Has God shown you that in your own heart? Has He shown you your sin? Has He shown you that even your best works are tainted with with sin, with pride, defiling things. I, um, 
George Whitfield, who said, we have to repent even of our best works. A low view. This is how God begins his work. And even Mephibosheth, when he's standing before David, what does he call himself? He says, why is it you have taken notice of me, a dead dog? Right? He doesn't say, David, it's about time, man. I mean, I've been living in this corner. I've been suffering. What took you so long? No, he says, I'm a dead dog. Why, why would you invite me to live at your house? I can't, I can't do anything for you. I can't help. I can't even carry the groceries in. I'm a crippled. Why would you bring me into your house? And we must have the same attitude before God. God, why would you have mercy on me? I've sinned. I mean, look at, look at all the people in the Gospels who came to Jesus with this attitude. Humbled. The sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet. This tax collector who realizes his unworthiness before God and all he can do is beat his chest and say, God, have mercy on me. Do you see yourself in Mephibosheth? We're not the hero of this story. We're the one who comes in need, the one who is impotent and unworthy and yet is received into the house of a king. We must come to God with the same humble attitude, feeling and acknowledging our unworthiness before him. Now let's turn to David. How does David's kindness towards Mephibosheth picture for us the undeserved mercy of Christ towards sinners? Well, I see, I see four things. Number one, David sought out Mephibosheth to show him kindness. You know, he didn't get, he didn't get a postcard in the mail and say, oh, hey, a letter from Mephibosheth. David didn't even know he existed. He had to seek out. He said, I want to show the kindness of God. I want to show the grace of God to someone. Find someone for me. Right? Christ seeks out the sinner to show him grace and forgiveness. Right? Luke 19, chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is the one seeking in this relationship. You might say, well, yes, but I, I sought the Lord. Yes, you sought Him because He first sought you. Because He caused you to see your need for Him. He caused you to long and to pant after God. And so you sought Him. Because Christ first sought you. So Christ seeks out the sinner to show him mercy. Number two, we see that David restored to Mephibosheth the inheritance of his father. He charged others to do the work on the land. And he would benefit from the work of others. He wouldn't have to do it. He couldn't do it himself. Mephibosheth couldn't. 
He had this vast inheritance that he had no power or ability to work. But yet, David charges others to work, and he would benefit from their work. Christ gives to the sinner an inheritance and a righteousness that are not his own doing. I see that gospel truth hidden in here. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Turn over to that passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He, Christ, I'm sorry, He, God the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of of God. Right? There's an exchange in this gospel, right? Our sin, your sin, my sin, placed upon Christ who pays the debt. And then the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, put upon the one who has faith in him, the one who trusts in Christ. It is not our righteousness. Right? The righteousness that we have as Christians, as has been said, is an alien righteousness. It is not ours. It is, it is not our good works. It is not our deeds. It is the deeds of Christ. It is the obedience of Christ that is put on to us. All that Christ is and has and has done is credited to the one who has faith in Christ, who believes in Him and trusts in Him. Christ gives to the sinner a righteousness that is not His own doing. Number three, we see that David made Mephibosheth a part of his household. He would eat every day at the king's table. (laughs) Imagine this. Here's a crippled man coming in on crutches or being carried. I don't, I don't know how he got around. Maybe he was on a mat like the, the lame man in the Gospels. Carried into the king's table. Not like, okay, Mephibosheth, we, you know, we got a little corner, another room, you can go sit over there. No, to the king's table. Sitting with the sons of David, like one of the sons, sitting there, enjoying the best He's not sitting with the dogs. He's sitting with the sons. And so, in the same way, Christ adopts the sinner and makes him as a son, sharing with him all of his goodness, all of his bounty, all of his mercy forever and ever. All right, Mephibosheth, I don't know how long he lived with David, but it pales in comparison to the eternity that the believer will sit at the table of the king, the king of kings, in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5, God sent His Son to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Right? When we enter the kingdom of heaven, God is not going to say, okay, I got a little corner for you. There's a little chair in the corner. Just be happy you got in here. No, he is going to say, come to the table. 
Come to the banquet of the king. Sit. Sit with David. Sit with Moses. Sit with Abraham. Sit with the saints. Sit sit with the martyrs. You're all here by the grace of God, by the work of Christ. So he makes us sons. He adopts us into his family, into his kingdom. And number four, David tells Mephibosheth not to fear. Can you imagine the relief on Mephibosheth's face? Again, you know, think, think you know, here's Mephibosheth living in the corner of Israel somewhere. He, he gets a message. King David wants to see you. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm Saul's grandson, one of the last remaining people in the line. What do, you, what do you think David wants to see me for? Yeah, he's going to kill me. He's going to end the line of Saul so he doesn't have to worry about any problems. I mean, he won't even let this crippled guy go. He's summoning me to my death. And then to come in to the presence of the king and to not see a scowl on David's face, but to see a smile... Mephibosheth, do not fear. Have no fear. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, he takes away our fear of death, our terror of hell, and he gives us peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah Chapter 43, verse 1, he says, Fear not, I have redeemed you. Right? That is a gospel promise for the believer. Think, believer, do you, do you trust in Christ? Do you know that you have no good in yourself? Do you know there is nothing in you that merits God's mercy and grace? Do you know that, like Mephibosheth, you are unworthy, deserving of only death? And that your only hope is Jesus Christ. Is that your hope? Is that your faith? Then Christ says to you in the gospel through the words of Isaiah 43.1, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Does that not... Speak peace to your soul. Does it not give you peace? In Christ, he says, Fear not, I have redeemed you. So, first, if there are any in here who do not have faith in Christ, do you see, do you realize your unworthiness, your sinfulness before God, your need for his grace? Has God humbled you? Do you stand or sit this evening and say, oh, I think I'm a good person. I think, I think this is okay. I think when I meet God, he'll say, you did your best. Or do you know that you are a sinner? Has God humbled you to see that your, what you think is righteousness, what you think is goodness, is actually filthy rags? Before God. Then look, Christ stands 
seeking the sinner. He stands bidding you, come. Come, repent, turn to Him. Be dressed in a righteousness that is not your own. Be adopted into a family that you were a foreigner to. Be invited into a kingdom that you once opposed. Bow to God. Come to Christ and fear not. But Christian, if you're a Christian, look, God has sought you. He has saved you. He has adopted you as His own. He has prepared an eternal inheritance for you in heaven. And understand this, the same grace that called you in the beginning to believe will keep you until the end. All right, every day, every day Mephibosheth sat down at the king's table and experienced his undeserved favor. All right, not just for a week. All right, this wasn't a little vacation, okay? Come stay in my house for a week. Then you go back to Lodabar and... No. It says he moved to Jerusalem. That was his new habitation. It was his new home. And he would come to the king's table day after day. And in the same way, we as Christians are invited to feast on the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel every day. Right? This message of grace in Christ, this message of salvation in Christ is not just a one-time thing. It is for us to return to again and again. We're invited every day to bring our sins and our weaknesses and our failures to the Lord for fresh cleansing and strength and grace in time of need. I love, uh, there's a song by Sovereign Grace Music uh, called Jesus Thank You. And uh, one of the lines in here just reminds me of this story. or I think it's the chorus. The chorus goes, Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would continue that you would continue to open our eyes to see the grace of God in Christ on every page of Scripture, Lord. We thank you that you've given us so many illustrations uh, in the sacrifice of Isaac, in this passage before us this evening. David's showing the kindness of God to the crippled grandson of his greatest enemy. Lord, help us to see. Help us to see our own sin and unworthiness, Lord. We have nothing, nothing with which we could bribe you, nothing with which we might earn your grace and mercy, but you have given it freely of yourself by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who displayed greater grace, greater mercy, greater acts of kindness than David ever could. Who took on our flesh, bore our sin, suffered in our place, died and rose on the third day, that we might become children of God, that we might be seated at the table in the kingdom of heaven, 
praising your mercies, praising your kindness, O God, for all eternity. May that be the theme of our hearts and the theme of our worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.